Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, again for your word. You're such a great and an awesome God. And Lord, as we look at the Exodus this morning, Father, and just look at the process of sanctification that, will, that goes on in the life of every believer, I pray, Father God, that we would learn and understand what it means to be more like you. And Lord, that through the understanding of what happens with Israel, Father God, may we grow to know and understand more about the sanctification process in our own life, where we become more like you. So, Father, we love you, we praise you, prepare hearts to hear, and I pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, as I was looking over this text uh, all day today, the thing that, that God put on my heart was sanctification. And what that is, just real quick, a quick uh, theological understanding of words, justification, sanctification, and then glorification. That is the threefold process in the life of a believer. Justification, when I was a youth pastor, I used to say it means just as if you've never sinned. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are justified. Just as if you've never sinned. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that He did for you. Amen? And you simply accept that as a free gift, and you become justified. Sanctification is the process from the day of justification until the day of glorification. Sanctified means being conformed into the image of Christ. We, as Christians, we should be coming more and more like Him every single day. Now, that's not always the case. Christianity, I've, I, I've used this analogy before, it's like a grease pole, you're either climbing up or sliding down. There's no such thing as a stagnant walk with God. You're either drawing closer to Him or you're falling farther away from Him. And so, but as Christians, the sanctification process, being set apart, being conformed more and more to His image, is the process that we go through day by day. And we're going to look at some aspects of sanctification as we look at Israel's exodus out of bondage in Egypt. So last week, we looked at the deliverance from bondage, or a couple weeks ago. This week, we're going to see some processes of sanctification, giving of our first fruits, remembering what has happened, whether it be uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where we see that what has been done for us, and who did it for us? You know, part of sanctification is understanding that we have been delivered, but also who is the one that has delivered us. And that's part of that process. We'll see that tonight. And then also we'll see that sanctification requires time in the wilderness. This is a part we don't want to hear, right? I want to be more like Jesus, but I don't want to have to go through any difficulties in my life. I want to be on the cruise ship to heaven and somehow get off, get off the ship and be closer to God when I get there. But the reality is that growth comes through trials and difficulty. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Amen? Why? Because it gets our eyes off of our own abilities, and it gets our eyes on the Lord. And we'll see that tonight as we look at those who are wandering, as they get ready to wander in the wilderness. So we saw God last week, or two weeks ago, deliver the people out of bondage. 400 years they'd been in bondage in Egypt. But I want to make a couple notes about that. First of all, they were delivered from bondage, but they were not delivered because of anything that they had done. For 430 years, they whined, they moaned, they complained, and they were outside of God's will. And yet, at the very end of it, it says in Exodus chapter 2, or, yeah, in Exodus chapter 2, it says this. It says that they came to the point where they finally got to the end of themselves. It says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned because of bondage, and they cried out, and they, their cry became, came up to God at, at, before God, because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His own covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So what was it that brought their deliverance from bondage? It was them crying out to God. And there's nothing else in this world that will deliver you from bondage but crying out to God. 
You must come to the point where you realize you are a sinner in need of a Savior. If you think you can do it by going to church every week or by being a good person or giving to charity or doing volunteer work or whatever else you think is a good thing that will get you into heaven, it's not going to work. We must come to a place where we are broken because we see our need for a Savior and we cry out to Him. This is what finally happens in Israel. It took 430 years of bondage, but finally they cried out to God. And when they cried out to God, He heard their voice. And when you cry out to God, He will hear your voice every single time. In Exodus chapter 4, it says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your firstborn. God made a promise right off the bat to Pharaoh, If you do not let my firstborn go, then I will kill your firstborn. And then God brought nine different plagues, each of which was an opportunity for repentance. You know, sometimes in our own life, God is gracious by not giving us the full weight of judgment when we deserve it. Amen? He'll bring something smaller and it's like, hello, you know, uh, you're, you're in sin here, out of my will, you need to stop this. And then we just continue on and then it's hello, you know, before you know it, you got whiplash, right? I mean, the Lord loves you enough that he'll keep coming after you. But in this case, he had warned Pharaoh and said, if you do not let my son go, then I'm going to bring death to your firstborn son. And so what happened is Pharaoh's heart grew harder and harder and harder. With each plague, no matter how heavy the plague got, he continued to stay steadfast in his refusal. He even said, who is the Lord that I should let his people go? So he just refused to let go. So, but deliverance came ultimately, as we saw two weeks ago, through the 10th plague. And again, what was, what was it, the 10th plague? It was, it was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And how did the firstborn die? The Lord came and told them, that if they did not take the blood of a firstborn spotless lamb and sprinkle the blood on the post, in the top of the door, the bottom of the door, making a perfect cross, unless they had that blood on their doorstep, that the firstborn within that house would die. No blood on the door, death in the house. No blood sprinkled upon your life, death and eternity separated from God. Somebody's got to pay for our sin. Either we pay or we let Him pay for us. Amen? That's how it works. Salvation is very simple. It's not a difficult message to understand. But the Lord came and He brought that message to them and they were delivered. And we saw that there were 600,000 men, probably about 2 million, with women and children. They girded up their loins, which means that they took their long robes and they stuck them in their belt so they could move quickly. They took their, their cooking utensils and things and put them on their back. They grabbed a staff and their sandals and out they went, 2 million of them, totally having to trust in God to provide. And they stepped out and they walked out into the wilderness. And their first stop, as we saw in the last chapter, was a place called Sukkoth. And I think it's interesting that I looked up that word, and it means dwelling of tents, or tent town. And you know what? Isn't that such a picture of what we are dwelling in right now? The Bible says we dwell in tents. This is not our home. This is not our permanent place of, of being, but so often we act like it is. And so on their journey, this was their first temporary stop. And just as our current dwelling on our journey to the land of promise is also that it's simply a tent. So we'll begin to look at Israel's journey to the land of promise. And as we learn from, from what they go through, we're going to see that there are things that apply to us as we headed to the land of promise. One of my favorite things, and many of you have heard me say it, one of my favorite things to say to people is, I'm going to heaven. Someone come up to me, how's it going? Going to heaven. What's up? Jesus, right? Focus needs to be on the eternal, not the temporal. And you know what? As we're headed to heaven, if you're born again, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're going. Amen? Your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're heaven-bound, as D.C. Talk would say. You're going. And praise the Lord for that. And as you're going to heaven, the good news is that there's nothing that will keep you from it. It's not based on how good you've been, but it's based on what He's done for you. Heaven is not a hope-so, it's a no-so. So I know for sure that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I'm going to heaven. But on my path to heaven, 
God, there's things that God wants to teach me. There's things, ways that God wants to use me. And it's all part of that sanctification process. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 13. And we're going to take a look at what's next for us. What does God want to do? You've given your life to Jesus Christ. You've been delivered. Israel's been delivered out of bondage. Where are they going now? To the land of promise. What's going to happen between the time now until they get to that land of promise? What's going to happen with us now until we get to heaven? What does God want to do with us? What does God want to see in us? Let's begin in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of men and beast, it is mine. So the first thing that we must do in the sanctification process is we give of our first fruits. You know, here's the reality. Everything is the Lord's. Amen? Everything we own belongs to God. It's not mine anyway. And we are to consecrate. And that word there is sanctify. And this is where I got the the title of the message for today is sanctify, to be set apart. God had delivered the firstborn of Israel from death in Egypt. Therefore, the firstborn, both humans and animals, were going to be consecrated to God as belonging to Him. Now, how do you consecrate? We know how you consecrate the animals. All the firstborn animals were to be sacrificed to the Lord. And we're going to look at more of that in a minute. Why was it firstborn? It was firstborn male perfect animals, all of which point to Jesus Christ. Everything that's in the Bible points to Jesus. If it's in God's Word, it's in there to make us better understand who Jesus Christ is. And we'll also see, though, that the children, the firstborn sons, were consecrated to the Lord for ministry. They became priests, those who served and ministered unto the Lord. Now, they would later be disqualified, and it would become the Levites, and we'll get to that in a couple chapters, when we see rebellion at Mount Sinai, when when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he comes back down, and they're all worshiping a golden calf. Now, that's not good. If you've got a bunch of priests who are supposed to be entering people into God's presence, and all of a sudden they're all worshiping a golden calf, that's not good. You need to fire those guys, and that's what the Lord does. He fires them all, and the only people that came to him, he said, come to me, those of you who want to serve the real Lord, all the Levites came to him. And that's when the Levites became the priestly line. That's when the Levites became the ones that God would use. But we'll see here that the first thing is we give of our first fruits. And if you're here tonight and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, then your life now belongs to Him. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. As the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. My life's verse in the Bible is Philippians 1.21, which says this. It's very simple. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My life is Christ. And to die, it only gets better. That sums up Christianity right there. Amen? For me to live... And you know what? You might ask yourself a question. What is it that you have a passion about? What is your life all about? For me to live is my career. For me to live is chasing money. For me to live is my relationship. For me to live is my children. You know what? Those things done in a, in a way that honors God are all good things. But the reality is this, that none of them should be more important than your relationship with Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ doesn't mean He's first. It means He's first, He's 50th, He's 100th, He's 1,000th, and He's every number in between. He is my life. And so He's saying, you know what? I want you to give to me of your first fruits. I want you to give your children to me. And here's the thing, you guys. You know what? I believe this is a picture of what, we sh- what happened with my daughter right in this room. We dedicate our children to the Lord. Amen? From the day they're born, from before she was born, I was laying my hand on my wife's stomach and praying for my daughter that she would love and serve and honor Jesus Christ. And, and she was dedicated to the Lord right here in this very spot. Pretty awesome, about 14 years ago. 
And so it's, that's what God's calling us to do. Let's give of him of our first fruits, of everything that we have. Lord, it's all yours. You, get, you don't get what's left over of me. And that's not just first fruits of our time, of our possessions, excuse me, and our money, but of our time. A lot of times we give God the time that's left over at the end of the day. You know, I'm tired. Well, I can read a verse or two. Now that I've watched four hours worth of movies, I'm really exhausted. I can't figure out why. And now I crack open the Bible and three verses in, you know. I mean, we give God the last of our time. And he wants us to give him our first fruit. So that's the first thing that we see in that sanctification process. He died for us. May we live for him. Our faith in Christ is not just a path to peace, happiness, and comfort on earth, but we should open our eyes to eternity. Help us to see where there's no greater thing that we can do and give for him. You know what? Here's the reality, guys. God wants us so much just to give him everything. And you know what? If you give him everything, you'll never regret it. Amen? Nobody ever is going to get to heaven and say, man, I wish I'd given God a lot less. You know, I wish I'd done less for the kingdom of God. It's never that way. God so desires that we would give him all that we have. He died for us. May we live for him. The second thing in that sanctification process is always remembering two things. What we've been delivered from and who it is that delivered us. Why do we take communion? We're going to talk about that in a minute. We take it to remember what we've been delivered from and who it is that delivered us. So often in the Christian walk, we can get on the cruise ship to heaven and we forget about that. And we'll talk about that as we move on. Let's begin by looking at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's interesting that we talked about this in the the last chapter, but we'll look at it here as well. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which he went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib, which is April. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to give your fathers and to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. So what was the Feast of Unleavened Bread all about? What does he start off by saying? Remember this day. What day is he talking about? He's talking about Passover. He says, I don't want you to forget that I delivered you out of bondage. I don't want you to forget that it was through the sprinkling of blood that you you were able to escape death. I want you to remember. And so you're going to continue year by year from, from now on to have Passover feast. And you're also going to have a feast of unleavened bread. Now the feast of unleavened bread was a seven day feast. And what's interesting about the feast of unleavened bread is it was in remembrance of deliverance, but then they had a feast of unleavened bread. Now you might say, wait a minute, what does unleavened bread have to do with Passover? Leaven in the Bible is always a picture of what? Sin. How are we delivered from sin? Through the Passover, through the shedding of His blood, through the cross of Jesus Christ. Why is it that when pa- that, that first day is Passover and the rest of the week is the feast of unleavened bread? Because for seven days we're remembering the result of Passover. It's not the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then Passover. It's not us being good and doing good things and not sinning and then Passover comes. It's Passover. It's the shedding of blood for the remission of sin and then we are without sin. And he warns them here, he says, Even when you come into the land of promise, the land of flowing flowing with milk and honey, remember the Passover, that you've been delivered from bondage. Don't get so caught up in your physical blessing that you lose sight of your spiritual deliverance. Now, I I referred to this a moment ago, but it's sad truth that quite often the most zealous Christians are the new believers. How many of you have ever noticed? A lot of times. You know why? Because the Passover to them just happened yesterday. 
I, you know what? You don't understand. Two days ago, I was, I was, my life was a disaster. You don't understand. I, I was headed to hell without Christ. I didn't understand what life was about. And I've been born again. I'm going to heaven. You know what? And there's an excitement in a new believer. But it's sad to me that to think that that's true, that that zeal somehow fades with time. But the reality is quite often that's exactly what happens. Those who have been just d- delivered are so thankful but again, as we move away from the time and place when we were delivered from bondage and sin, the bondage of sin and death, you get sometimes two years, five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years down the, lo- the road, you become lukewarm. You lose your joy, your thankful heart, your burden for the lost. The reality is that it ought to be just the opposite. The more time we spend with the Lord, the deeper and stronger our faith should become and the more zealous we ought to become. Amen? The more days you walk with the Lord, the more excited you ought to be about the things of God. The, less you ought to, the more you ought to be like Him and the less you ought to be like the world. And, and the sad part is, again, it's that grease pole analogy. Too often, Christians are sliding down. They got the get-out-of-hell free card in their wallet. You know, I'm going to heaven, and one of these days I'm going to pull that card. There it is. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer when I was 13. It's all good. I'm going. I got the down payment. You got, where's my house? Where's that mansion you've been talking about, right? And a lot of times, people, there's that mentality. Instead of desiring to go deeper in the things of God, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God's called me as a pastor to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That doesn't mean equip you so you can just sit there and, right? Be a big fat sheep, right? Eat, 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 eat. And be as big and fat as you can possibly be. The Dead Sea's dead because it has an inlet, no outlet. As Christians, God so desires not just to save us, but to use us for His glory. Amen? And I can think of no greater privilege on earth than God uses a knucklehead like me. It blows my mind. We're going to see here in a minute that God uses donkeys. And what's amazing about that is the donkey really is pointing to us. That's who we are. We're a bunch of donkeys, right? I mean, without His shed blood, we're going to hell without Him. But God can still use men and women like us. And you know what? The, The more time we spend with God, may we become more zealous and not become cold in the things of God. And you know what? Here's the reality. How do you stay hot? Stay close to the fire. Amen? Stay close. Stay close to Him. Spend time with Him. Be in His Word. You take a coal. You get a pile of hot coals. and You take one coal out and put it by itself. What happens to it? It, gets, it just gets cold. All the other coals are steaming hot. We need to stay in fellowship. We need to stay in the Word. We need to stay near to God. And God will light a fire within us. Verse 6 and 7. And it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be among you, nor shall leaven be among you in all your quarters. Now, in conjunction with the Passover, we see the seven days of unleavened bread, and, it, and we know this about leaven. Leaven is the same as sin. You put a little leaven, the Bible you know, it says, the saying says that the little, little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? You put a little yeast in the bread, it's going to get to all of it. You know, not a little big piece, one piece of it, it all grows. It all expands. And a little sin brings destruction. And you know what? I want to say this, and, and it just kind of grips my heart when I hear this, that quite often people think that if you have a problem with sin, you're being judgmental. The Bible says that no leaven be found in your house. We saw that in chapter 12 last week. But then people will say, I had a lady at work tell me this, well, so-and-so is the only real Christian I know because she's tolerant of everybody. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. We should love people, but we need to hate sin. And that's not true Christianity, being tolerant of everybody. And what that kind of means is, you know, well, my four-year-old son's playing with matches, but I want to be tolerant. And, you know, he's going to probably burn himself up, and, you know, but I'm going to be a tolerant dad because, now that's not love. 
A loving dad's going to go over and take the matches away and, you know, give him a swat with the Board of Education and say, stay away from those matches, right? Why? Because I love my son and I want what's best for my son. And you know what? To hate sin is not the opposite of love. Hating sin is true love. Amen? Because sin brings destruction and sin brings death. And so, so often we want to dial it down. And, and here's the problem in the church today. We've allowed sin to run rapid and we don't want to confront it anymore. We just want to be tolerant of the whole world and just, oh, it's all good. What did Jesus say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did John the Baptist say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Peter say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What should we be saying? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? And so often it's like, well, it's okay if we have homosexual pastors. It's okay if people live together. It's okay if people do drugs and drink. Whatever. Just do whatever you want to do. We don't want to condemn anybody. You know what? We're not condemning them. The word of God condemns sin. Amen? Now again, do we love those people? Absolutely. We should love them supernaturally. They should feel welcomed and loved and cared for. Again, the church is not a a police station where people come to get beat up. It's a hospital where people come to get ministered to. But at the same time, the most vile thing I can do as a pastor is know that somebody's involved in a a sin that's going to destroy their lives and say nothing. Well, you know, just keep coming and tithing and it's all good. I'm not going to worry about it. That's not a good, that's not a pastor. And I'm going to stand before God one day and I'm going to be accountable. And that's why, you know what? Lord forbid that I ever dial it down. That I ever try to be a a man pleaser instead of a God pleaser. You know what? May every one of us have a zeal to honor only one and that's God. Amen? If we honor him, he'll be glorified and God will do great things. You know what? You don't see mighty men of God dialing it down. You know, I had a shirt that my, I think one of my kids gave it to me. And it doesn't fit anymore, but it said, love God, hate sin. And you know what? You can't do one without the other. You can't love God and love sin. That doesn't work. And you can't hate sin and hate God. If you hate sin, you'll love God. So that's the reality. We need to love God and hate sin. And again, the truest form of love is pointing others away from that which will destroy them and pointing them to a loving and a gracious and a merciful God. And that's the God that we serve. Verse 8. And you should tell your son... On that day saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. So not only is this done as a reminder to us of what we've been delivered from and who is the one who has delivered us, but to point our children to the deliverer. You know, when we come, we have communion. Your kids are going to ask you, what, what is, why, are you, why are we having crackers and juice? Help me out. You know, what is this? Why are we doing this? That's an opportunity to point our kids to Christ. Amen? And every time they did this, he said, you're going to be able to point, I want you to point your kids to the Lord. When you're having the Passover and you're having the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and they say to you, why are we doing this, Mom and Dad? You point them back to the, to the time of deliverance out of Egypt and you tell them that, you, that we were delivered out of the bondage of sin. Again, what does it do? It serves as a reminder for what we've been delivered from and who it is who's delivered us. You know what? Take every opportunity you can to minister to your kids. Take every opportunity you can to minister to your kids. You know, those of you who have older kids, I mean, it's amazing. You blink and your kids are all grown up. You just, just boom, they're out of your house. And you know what? Christmas time, Thanksgiving, whatever is going on in your house, take opportunities to minister to your children because you don't, you're not going to have this time back again. You know, decorate the tree with your kids and talk about what tr- Christmas is about. You know, my house, we only give the kids three presents because Jesus only got three. My kids ain't getting any more than Jesus on his birthday. So, I mean, but they know and understand why they get three presents and why it is that, that, you know, what is a candy cane about? It blows my mind when you find out what the true meaning of a candy cane is. You know, it was made by a Christian man. 
You know, when you hold it up, it's in the made, made in the letter J. It was made out of a white hard candy to represent that Jesus Christ is pure and holy and the rock upon which we stand. It's got a red stripe upon it, which, which represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Then three small red stripes, which represent that through his stripes we are healed. When you turn it upside down, it makes a shepherd's staff. And the reality is that most people have no idea that that's what a candy cane is all about. But the reality is we need to tell people. We need to tell people. We need to deliver that message to people. We need to deliver those messages to our kids. And that's what he's saying here. The Lord is saying, you hand this down to your children. Because the farther and farther away you get from the Passover, the less and less people are going to remember it. The farther and farther away we get from the cross, the less and less people are going to remember it. People are saying, oh, it doesn't even happen now. They're denying that there even was a crucifixion. They're denying that there was a resurrection. But we need to remind people and point them to the truth. Verse 9. It shall come to you as a sign to you on your hand and on the memorial between your eyes, as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now, the Jews took this literally, and they created these things called phylacteries. Have you ever heard of that before? A phylactery is a little box, and they would tie them around there. And it's still today, if you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem right now, if there's people there at this moment, but... You go there today, they've got these little phylacteries they put on their head, and they take the Ten Commandments that are written out, and they stick them in the little box, and they tie it around their head, and they tie them on their wrists, and they put these little phylacteries there. And the Pharisees believed that, the, you know, the broader your phylactery was, the more holy you were. And so they, you know, you, I don't know, probably guys walking around with, you know, <laughs> walking around with a cardboard box on his head, you know, I'm really holy. But the problem is that people, again, they take the physical things and try to make that what holiness is. And what the Lord is really saying here is you take this and let this law be on your mind, between your eyes, on your mind, and let it be in your hands. Take what God has revealed to you and go to work with it. Amen? Have it be on your mind. Have it be in your hands. Don't just be sitting around and being a pew potato, right? Take this word of God, hide it in your heart, have it be on your mind, and have it be working out in your hands. Then we're going to see now here the law of the firstborn. Look at verse 11. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. So the Lord delivered the firstborn out of death in Egypt, and the firstborn belonged to the Lord. So God is going to fulfill his promise to give them the land of promise, but rather than become complacent in the land of promise, he wants them to remember once they get there, to sacrifice every firstborn male animal to the Lord. Now again, an opportunity to minister to your kids. Dad, you know, the, the, the sheep had you know, eight lambs. Why are we taking the, the best lamb, the oldest lamb, the perfect lamb, and we're sacrificing? Why are we doing this, Dad? Why are we killing this lamb? An opportunity to minister to your family. An opportunity to point them to the truth. And that's exactly what God desires that they do. That they would not forget that as they got away from the, the land of the Passover, that they would not forget the Passover. The Passover. This ordinance, it says, pointed, again, pointed to Jesus, and it continued until the days of Jesus. In Luke 2.22, it says this. I found this interesting. Now, when the days of her purification, this is Mary, according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And as it was written in the law of God, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. That law was established right here in the book of Exodus. And all those hundreds of years later, when Jesus was born, they went in and fulfilled that very same law. He was the male that opened the womb and they went in and they made sacrifice to the Lord 
on behalf of their firstborn son. Why is it the firstborn son that they made sacrifice on behalf of? Because it pointed to Jesus. Everything that we see in God's word is there for a reason. Verse 13. But every firstborn of a donkey, now this is us, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break, then, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of men among your sons you shall redeem. Okay, now, a donkey was an unclean animal. And so a donkey, they couldn't take the firstborn donkey to, you know, as a sacrifice to the other donkey. So the donkey could not redeem itself. So the donkey had one choice. Either somebody else had to be redeemed for the donkey or the donkey's neck was going to be broken. The donkey was going to have to die. Now, we know that the lamb is a picture of Jesus. So again, who is the donkey a picture of? It's us. The donkey could not redeem itself. The donkey, donkey could not pay for itself. So for the donkey to live, a lamb must die. We see that right there in the verse. Look what it says there. But every firstborn of donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Only the Lamb of God can take away the sins of the world. Remember when Jesus came to be baptized? John the Baptist saw him coming. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For almost 2,000 years, they've been performing rituals with lambs and having no idea what it really meant. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks under the scene, and here's the answer to 2,000 years of sacrifices of lambs. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, the donkey's done unless the lamb dies. And you know what? We're done if the lamb didn't die for us. Amen? Only through the shed blood of the lamb can we be saved. And you know what's interesting to me, though? I love how God later uses a donkey. You know, it's, donkeys are mentioned eight times in the Old Testament. And the first seven times are not good. They're carrying stuff around, and they're stubborn, and they're, you know, they're donkeys. They're beasts of burden. Isn't that interesting that they're called beasts of burden? And what's interesting to me is that we have the burden of sin upon us, but God comes to take away that burden. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen? But these beasts of burden were going around and they were of no value. But what's awesome to me is that when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, he came in riding a what? A donkey. And I love the fact that it was a donkey that brought Jesus in to fulfill the ultimate promise and it was a donkey that brought jesus in so that many may come to know god and it's donkeys like us that god can use today to bring the truth of god's word to a lost and dying world amen so god can use a donkey he spoke to balaam and you guys know that story balaam's going along and the donkey turns around and goes dude and basically I mean, that's paraphrased but he says dude don't you see the angel that's in front of us god can speak through a donkey god can use a donkey to carry the messiah into the people and you know what god can use people like me and you and i like that it says in zechariah 9 9 lowly and riding on a donkey the donkey brought jesus in and you know what god wants to use us to bring jesus to a lost and dying world verse 14 so, so it shall be when your son asks you in the time to come saying what is this you know why are we sacrificing then you shall say to him, By stretch of the hand of the Lord brought us out of, the, out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beasts. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So when a newborn child was born, they would go in and make sacrifice and the firstborn animals. But look what it says there. Not only what we've been delivered from, but who delivered us. Look what it says in that verse. And it says, and the Lord killed all 
the firstborn. People, some people struggle with the fact that the Lord would kill anybody. But here's the reality. We all are deserving of death. Don't ever say, I don't deserve that, because you really don't want what you deserve. Amen? I don't want what I deserve, because what I deserve is hellfire and separation from God for all eternity, because I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I don't want what I deserve. No thanks. Don't give me what I, please don't give me what I deserve. That's what mercy is all about, right? Give me what I don't deserve. And here's the thing. So it's not give me what I do deserve. Grace is give me what I don't deserve. And so what we see here is that the Lord brought judgment upon men who rejected him over and over and over. This was the 10th plague where death came. There were nine plagues before it, nine opportunities before it for men to repent. And nine times they said, no, no, no. Everyone who stands before Almighty God one day, no one will be able to say, it hasn't been fair. Nobody. Nobody will be able to say, I never had an opportunity to know you. Instead, they'll be shown rejection after rejection after rejection. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to know the true and the living God. It shall be a sign on your hand, on your frontlets, between your eyes, and by the strength of the hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Again, it'll be something that's on your mind, on your heart. It'll be a constant reminder. Lastly, sanctification in the wilderness of trials. Now this is interesting. We see here sanctification, giving of our first fruits. Sanctification, remembering what we've been delivered from and who it is that has delivered us. But here's the ultimate part of sanctification, and this is the part that people struggle with the most. It's the wilderness situation. We've got to... Now when you see the word wilderness here, this is not like... Swiss Family Robinson, you know, living out in the, you know, they're chasing, you know, catching fish, and there's bears and trees. No, it's not that kind of wilderness. Think desert. Think the wilderness with nothing. And that's where they headed. So after 400 something years of bondage, where do they go first? Right into the desert. Thanks a lot. Right? I mean, I just, wait a minute, and you're going to hear them crying too. Wait a minute, we had leeks and onions back there, and you know, I had a place to live, and you know, I had to make bricks all day, but at least I had a place to sleep at night, and now you got me out in the wilderness, and we're going to see initially they were traveling day and night. They're girding up their loins, they got all their stuff on their back, two million people just going out into the wilderness. And wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. I, let's stay in Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. And we're going to see here as we go through this text, these six verses, that there's a much shorter trek between Egypt and the land of promise. There's a trek you could get to eat from Egypt to the land of promise in about 10 days. If you just went straight there, you'd get there in about 10 days. But the Lord is going to lead them out into the wilderness, and His design was to have them out there for about a year. Why? Because He knew that they needed to learn something. Because he could get the people out of Egypt, but he needed to get the Egypt out of the people. Amen? You know, it's easy to say, well, get us out of the world, but we need to get the world out of us. Sometimes we're so focused on the world and consumed by the world and in love with the world and the things of the world that we're, you know, we're so worldly-minded, we're no heavenly good. I've had people say all the time, well, people are so heavenly-minded, no earthly good. I, think, I don't think that's very, almost never the problem. That's not the problem. Oh, those guys are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. If you're heavenly-minded, you're all about reaching people for Christ. Amen? It's so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. 
We're just trying, you know, again, the cruise ship, we're hanging on to the world and hanging on to Christ all at the same time, and you can't do both of those things. We're going to see sanctification in the wilderness of trials, beginning here again in verse 17. Look what it says. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of Philistines, although that was near. That's a 10-day trip. If they went that way, it would take them 10 days. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel were up in orderly ranks out out of the land of Egypt. So, they could go through the land of the Philistines, but the Lord knew and was concerned that if they went that way, this 10-day journey, that as soon as trouble came, they would run back to Egypt. As soon as difficulties came, they would just run right back home. Heard an analogy one time, and I really like it, and I don't know if I've shared it with you guys or not. But it's a parachute analogy. You know, guy's getting on a plane. As soon as he gets on the plane, guy calls him, stewardess calls him over and says, hey, let me tell you something. I got this parachute for you. And if you wear this parachute, you're going to have the smoothest flight you've ever had in your life. Things are going to be more wonderful. You're going to be more comfortable. It's going to be great. And he keeps talking to him, well, all right, I'll try it. Throws the parachute on. As soon as he puts it on, he notices right away the thing's heavy. He's walking down the aisle, and every passenger on the whole flight is laughing at him doofus with a parachute, right? They're all laughing at him, giving him heat. He goes, he sits down, and he notices immediately he's not more comfortable. He's, it, it, he can't get in his seat barely. He's pushing him forward. And then the waitress comes by carrying a tray of hot coffee, and it, it hits his parachute, and all the coffee pours down his back, and he gets burnt up. And he's like, man, heck with this parachute. Takes the parachute off, throws it in the aisle, and said, everything they promised me is not true. Now, if you take that same person, you hand him the parachute, and you say, oh, by the way, Halfway through the flight, I happen to know we're, we're running low on gas. plane's going to crash. Now, this parachute will save your life. Guy has a totally different attitude about the parachute. Amen? He goes back and sits down. And people are going, doofus, you need to get it. Hey, no, you don't understand, man. You need a parachute. <laughs> I mean, you better run back and see if there's any left before they run out. Right? He sits down, and he's not worried about how uncomfortable he is. He's just holding tighter to that parachute. Somebody comes by and spills coffee down his back, and he's like, dude, thank God for the parachute. Right? I mean, he doesn't ever blame the parachute. He doesn't blame. Why? Because he has an understanding of what the parachute will deliver him from. And you know what? When trials come in the life of people that are, you know, oh, I've heard about Jesus, if they don't truly have a relationship with him, but they don't understand they've been saved from something, they'll run right back to their old life that quick. And the Lord knew that these guys have been murmuring and complaining for 430 years. If I take them on a 10-day journey and they run into the Philistines, they're all going to run back to Egypt. I've got to take them out. And I've got to make these guys, I've got to sanctify them. I've got to teach them. I've got to mature them in their relationship with me. And the only way that's going to happen is we're going to have to go on a little journey. We're going to have to take a little bit longer trek to get there. You know, I thought about this as I was studying this. I grew up in Santa Cruz. But I left this place for 15 years before I came back to be the pastor here. Now, it sure would have made a lot more sense when I was like 21 years old if I just started a church. I wouldn't have had to move, go to different cities. I lived, in, I lived in Seattle, Denver, Kansas City, Lancaster, and San Jose while I was gone. And now, well, wait a minute. That's like, why am I going all over the place? I don't quite understand. You know what? God had a plan. And he had to take me out into the wilderness a little bit. He had to take me out into some places where he had some things he wanted to teach me. And you know what? He did. 
And I wouldn't trade my time in Seattle and Denver and Kansas City or my 10 years in Lancaster or the five years in San Jose. Every bit of it was a part of God's plan preparing me. And you know what? Everything I'm going through now is still part of God's plan. And everything you're going through now is all part of God's perfect plan. God didn't fall asleep at the switch when it comes to your life. Amen? God knew you were going to lose your job. God knew you were going to have health problems. God knew you were going to have problems with your kids. God knew all the things and struggles you were going to go through. And we're going to see as we continue on in the text that God will use it to conform you more to His image if you will just let Him. He knew these guys were not battle ready. He knew they would turn back. And so sanctification requires that we spend time in the wilderness. Why? Because it's in the wilderness that we grow the most. You know, Psalm 23 when we're laying down in the green pastures and everything's good, that's not where we grow. We love our shepherd when we're there, but that's not where we grow. We grow when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That's where we grow. When things are difficult, we're holding tight to the Lord. Amen? We're constantly in prayer. We're desperate for Him. When things are perfect, sometimes we could fall into the trap of putting things on cruise control. As we experience firsthand through trials, what do we experience? The power of God, the provision of God, and the faithfulness of God. And it's then that we learn to trust completely in God. It helps us take our eyes off the enemy that's behind us. We're going to see this next week. They're going to go out, and here comes the army behind them, right? And they're going to watch God deliver them from the army behind them and from the obstacle in front of them, the Red Sea. If they had gone the other way, they would have never crossed the Red Sea. If they'd gone the other way, they would have never seen the pillar of fire and the pillar of a cloud. If they'd gone the other way, they would have never seen the enemy washed away in the Red Sea behind them. They would have never get to, got to see the hand of Almighty God if they had not gone the difficult route. And the same is true of us. If we don't go through the difficulties of life, we will never get to see God move. Amen? There's nothing more wonderful than watching God move and you know it has to be God. It has to be. How did that happen? I remember growing up a few times when my dad was a full-time pastor and there was times when, when we were running short on money, we didn't have a lot of food and we'd come home and our cupboards would be full of food or somebody puts food on your, on your doorstep and you say, you know, that's the Lord. You go out to your mailbox, you're down to your last, and there's a check waiting for you. You know, and there's those times when we just go through that wilderness that we learn to trust God. It's one thing to talk about it in theory and it's another thing to know it by having lived through it. Amen? And so he sends them out to the wilderness because he wants them to see the Red Sea in front of them. He wants them to see the enemy coming behind them. And he wants to see that he is the one that delivers them. Verse 19, we're almost done. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones with you from here. Here's another result of sanctification. That's something else that brings sanctification. The faith of others. When you see people on fire for God, doesn't it impact you? Doesn't it? When you see somebody who's just going for it for Jesus, you go, oh, dude, man. And you, you start looking at your own life. It starts, oh, man I, man, I need to be like that. I want to be on fire like that. And they spent, oh, man, that's incredible. Man, I want to be like that. And you see it, and it convicts you. And here's Joseph, who 360 years earlier said, when, I, when, when you go into the land of promise, because you're going, guys, just want to make you clear, I want you to make a solemn oath with me that you're going to take my bones with you when you go, because you guys are going into the land of promise, because God said so. And I trust him. And here they are carrying jo Joseph's bones. Now you can imagine a few people might have had some questions about carrying dead guys' bones with them when they're leaving Egypt. You think somebody might have said, what, now, what, what's this bone stuff? Why are we taking dead bones with us? What's this all about? What's that? Opportunity. Well, remember Joseph, mighty man of Egypt? And you know what I love about this? Joseph was a ruler in Egypt. Joseph 
was uh, famous in Egypt. Joseph was used mightily in Egypt, but Joseph did not view Egypt as his homeland. And you know what? The same is true of us. Egypt, a typology of the world, we can be used mightily in the world. We may find some comfort in the world, but you know what? This is not our home, you guys. Amen? We're aliens here. Tent city. And we're living in it. And this is not where we're going to spend eternity. And we need to have a heavenly and eternal focus. Now Joseph trusted in God and Joseph was used mightily by God. And Joseph had a great testimony with these people 360 years later. But I think Joseph went through a little bit of a wilderness himself. Amen? Went up with his coat of many colors. You guys are all bowing to me. One of these days, I had a dream. You're all going to bow to me. Oh, his brothers go, oh yeah? Okay. All right, prophecy boy, come here. And they grabbed him and they took his coat and they threw him into a pit. And they dipped his coat in blood and went home and told his dad that he'd been killed. Some tra slave traders went by. They sold him into slavery. He becomes a slave and he does such a great job as a slave. He gets elevated to the head of his house. And you know what happens? Potiphar's wife starts trying to get him to come sleep with her. He says, no, I'm not sleeping with you. And he runs away and leaves his coat. Well, she accuses him falsely. He gets thrown in prison. I mean, this guy, you know, thanks a lot. In a pit, sold into slavery. Now I'm in prison. And everywhere he goes. But you know what I love about this? Joseph was used mightily by God because a man, who's been, a man cannot be deeply used until he's been deeply broken. And Joseph had been deeply broken, became deeply desperate, and then was used deeply by God. And as long as we're self-reliant and trusting in ourselves and our own ability, we can never be used by God the way that He would desire to use us. So we see here that His testimony is such a powerful thing. Last two verses, three verses. Verse 20. So He took their, took their journey from Sokoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Now this is interesting to me. Sokoth means tent town, so they left there, and they went to a place of Etham on the end of the wilderness. So they're on the brink of disaster in the desert. It appears totally bleak. They're at the end of the desert. Not just in the desert, they're at the end of the desert. And at the end of the desert, they come to this place called Etham. You know what Etham means? It means with you. I like that. So even though they're in the wilderness, God is with them. Amen? With them. He's with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. God is always with you. So you may be in the most desperate, heartache time of your life and know that you're not alone. The Bible says in Psalms, again, 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Amen? So God never leaves you. He never turns His back on you. If you're going through a time of difficulty, take peace to know that the Lord is with you. And remember, too, that it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without Him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing down and worshiping the golden idol, Remember he said, you know, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands, right? Nebuchadnezzar, guy who sliced people up all the time. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? I said, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, whether, you know, no matter what you say, we're going to honor God. Whether God delivers us or not, it doesn't make any difference. Throw us in the fire. We're not going to bow to you. Nebuchadnezzar said, heat it up seven times. How hot does fire have to be to burn you? I've never figured. But heat it up seven times hotter. And it was so hot when they opened up the, this kiln, this oven, it smoked the guys that were pushing them in. But we know the story. You, they pushed them in bound, and then, they, then Nebuchadnezzar comes in, looks in, and he doesn't see three. But he says, did not we push three in? And now there are four. And they're walking around. And the fourth one is in the likeness of the Son of God. When you're in the fire, who's in the fire with you? Jesus is. Amen? And what did he have to do? He went from, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands, to come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. Right? Change in Nebuchadnezzar happened because of the obedience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And I love the fact that they had to be called out of the fire because it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without him. Amen? I'd rather be in the deepest trial in the world and have Jesus with me than be on a mountaintop somewhere with all the money in the world and not have the Lord on my side. Verse 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them in the day went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead the way, and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So not only is he with you when you're in the wilderness, but he leads you every step of the way if you will let him. So not only does he lead you, but he's but is he with you, but he leads you. So if you're going through a difficulty, God's right there and he says, look, I'm with you and I want to show you where to go next. If you'll just trust me, if you just turn to me, if you just seek me, I'll show you where you're supposed to go. Traveling night and day, God led them with a constant standing miracle. Can you imagine? All day long, there's a cloud. And you know the word for cloud is Shekinah. Shekinah. You guys heard that word before? Shekinah glory. The presence of all God, of, of Almighty God. It says that when they would go on to make sacrifice, that the Shekinah glory would rest upon the tabernacle. The Shekinah, the presence of God was with them and going before them. And then at night, it was a fire. He was the light in the darkness. They were walking in pitch black darkness, and the Lord was a light unto their feet, right? A lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. He guided, he led, he directed. So not only is he with you in trials, but he will lead you if you will just let him. So in review, here's what we've learned tonight. Some valuable lessons about the process of sanctification in our own journey to the land of promise. As we've been set apart to him, as we desire to go deeper in our walk with him, here's some things we need to do. One, give our first fruits to the Lord. Our lives belong to him. Amen? Give it to Say, Lord, I want to give you it all. I love that story about a man when they were passing the offering plate. He, he just wanted to put himself in the plate. I just, wanted to, I just want to put myself in the plate. I don't want to give him my money. I want to give him me. I want to give him my all. And you know what? That's a great offering is to give all. To be in a constant state and remembrance of what God has delivered us from and who it is that has delivered us. And that the time we spend in the wilderness that our, our faith will grow as we witness the power of God and as we witness the faithfulness of God and the provision of God. And lastly, our faithful minister to others like Joseph. Remember that we're never alone when you're in the wilderness. Remember that no matter what's going on, that God will lead you every step of the way. And as we continue our process of sanctification, here's what we need to do. Get our eyes off the enemy that's behind us. Get our eyes off the obstacle that's before us. And put our eyes instead and boldly place our eyes and our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord. And we thank you, Father God, for your grace and your mercy. And we just pray, Lord, that, that Father God, that we would learn about that sanctification process, that it would be something that takes place in our life day by day, that, Father, we would not be overwhelmed by our, our circumstances, but we would know that you're with us. Father, that we would get to the point where we give you our first fruits, that we give you ourselves, Father God, that, Lord, that we would just desire, just like that man, to put our whole body into the offering plate. And, Father God, I thank you that when we're in the wilderness and we're in the trials, that you're with us, but, Lord, that you lead and direct us every step of the way. Father, just help us, Father God, to serve you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that have an impact on this lost and dying world. We know, Lord, that without you we can do nothing. So fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close with a worship song.